0: Section Fourteen of A Life's Morning. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Susan Smith Nash, Tulsa, Oklahoma. A Life's Morning by George Gissing. Section Fourteen. Chapter Ten. At the sword's point, Dagworthy in these days could scarcely be deemed a man with humanity's plenitude of interacting motives, of contrasting impulses, of varying affections. He was become one passion, a personified appetite. He went through his routine at the mill and elsewhere in a mechanical way, all the time his instincts and habits subjugated themselves to the frenzy which chafed at the centers of his life. In his face you saw the monomaniac. His eyes were bloodshot, his lips had a harsh, parched yellowness of tone. His skin seemed dry and burning. Through the day he talked, gave orders, wrote letters, and by mere force of lifelong habit much in his usual way. At night he wandered about the heath, now at great pace, driven by his passions, now loitering, stumbling. Between dark and dawn he was fifty times in front of the hood's house. He watched the extinguishing of the lights in window after window and when all were gone made away with curses on his lips only to return an hour later to torture himself with conjecture which room might be emily's his sufferings were inutterable his sufferings were unutterable what devil he groaned had sent upon him this torment. He wished he were, as in former days, when the indifference he felt toward his wife's undeniable beauty had, as it seemed, involved all womankind. In those times he could not have conceived a madness such as this. How had it arisen? Was it a physical illness? WAS IT MADNESS IN TRUTH, OR THE BEGINNING OF IT? WHY HAD IT NOT TAKEN HIM FOUR MONTHS AGO WHEN HE HAD MET THIS GIRL AT THE BAXENDALE'S? BUT HE REMEMBERED THAT EVEN THEN SHE HAD ATTRACTED HIM STRANGELY. HE HAD QUITTED THE OTHERS TO TALK TO HER. HE MUST HAVE BEEN PREPARED TO CONCEIVE THIS FRANTIC PASSION ON COMING TOGETHER WITH HER AGAIN. LOVE ALONE, SO FELT AND SO FRUSTRATED, WOULD HAVE BEEN BAD ENOUGH. IT WAS THE ADDED pang OF JEALOUSY THAT MADE IT A FIERCE AGONY. IT WAS WELL THAT THE MAN SHE HAD CHOSEN WAS NOT WITHIN HIS REACH. HIS MOOD WAS THAT OF A MURDERER the very heat and vigour of his physical frame the native violence of his temper disposed him to brute fury if an instinct such as this once became acute and the imaginative energy which lurked in him a sort of undeveloped genius was another source of suffering beyond that which ordinary men endure He was a fine creature in these hours, colossal, tragic, It needed this experience to bring out all there was of great and exceptional in his character. He was not of those who can quit the scene of their fruitless misery and find forgetfulness at a distance. Every searing stroke drove him more desperately in pursuit of his end. He was further from abandoning it now that he knew another stood in his way than he would have been if Emily had merely rejected him. He would not yield her to another man. He swore to himself that he would not let it cost him and her what it might he swore to himself that he would not let it cost him and her what it might he had seen her again with his glass from the windows of the mill had scarcely moved his eyes from her for an hour a hope came to him that she might by chance walk at evening on the heath. But he was disappointed. Emily, indeed, had long shunned walks in that direction. He had no other means of meeting her, yet he anguished for a moment's glimpse of her face. Today he knew a cruel assuagement of his torture. He had returned from his short absence with a resolve to risk an attempt, which was only not entirely base by virtue of the passion which inspired it, and it appeared to him that his stratagem had succeeded. Scruples he had indeed known, but not at all of the weight they would have possessed for most men, and this Not only because of his reckless determination to win by any means, his birth and breeding enabled him to accept meanness as almost a virtue in many of the relations and transactions of life. The trickery and low cunning of the mercantile world was in his blood. It would come out when great occasion saw use for it even in the service of love. He believed it was leading him to success. Certainly the first result that he aimed at was assured, and he could not imagine a subsequent obstacle. He would not have admitted that he was wronging the man whom he made his tool. If honesty failed under temptation, it was honesty's own lookout. Ten to one, he himself would have fallen into such a trap. In similar circumstances, he was quite free from pharisaical prejudice. Had he not reckoned on mere human nature in devising his plan, nor would the result be cruel, for he, had it in his power to repay a hundredfold all temporary pain there were no limits to the kindness he was capable of when once he had emily for his wife she and hers should be overwhelmed with the fruits of his devotion it was to no gross or commonplace future that the mill owner looked forward there were things in him of which he was beginning to be conscious, which would lead him, he could not yet see whither. Dunfield was no home for Emily. He knew it, and felt that he too would henceforth have need of a larger circle of life. He was rich enough, and by transferring his business to other hands, he could become yet richer, gaining freedom at the same time. No disappointment would be in store for him, as in his former marriage. Looking back on that, he saw now how boyish he had been, how easily duped. There was not even the excuse of love. He held her gained. What choice would she have, with the alternative to be put before her? IT WAS STRANGE THAT, IN SPITE OF WHAT SHOULD HAVE BEEN SYMPATHETIC INTELLIGENCE, HE MADE A SLIGHT ACCOUNT OF THAT LOVE WHICH, AS SHE TOLD HIM, SHE HAD ALREADY BESTOWED. IN FACT, HE REFUSED TO DWELL UPON THE THOUGHT OF IT. IT WOULD HAVE MADDENED HIM IN EARNEST. WHO COULD SAY IT WAS VERY POSSIBLE SHE HAD TOLD HIM a FALSEHOOD, It was quite allowable in any woman to escape from a difficult position. In his heart he did not believe this, knowing her better, though his practical knowledge of her was so slight, but it was one of the devices by which he mitigated his suffering now and then. If the engagement existed, it was probably one of those which contemplated years of waiting otherwise why should he have kept silence about it at home in any case he held her how could she escape him he did not fear appeals to his compassion against such assaults he was well armed Emily pleading at his feet would not be a picture likely to induce him to relax his purpose she could not take to flight the very terms of his control restrained her there might be flaws in his case legally speaking but the hoods were in no position to profit by these seeing that in order to do so they must begin by facing ruin emily was assuredly his today was friday he knew from talk with the Cartwrights that Jessie's lessons were on alternate days, and as he had seen the two in the garden this morning, there would be no lesson on the morrow. It was not easy to devise a plot for a private interview with Emily, yet he must see her to-morrow, and, of course, alone. A few words with her would suffice. To call upon her, at the house, would be only his last resource. He felt assured that she had not spoken to her parents of the scene in the garden. Several reasons supported this belief, especially the reflection that Emily would desire to spare her father the anxieties of a difficult position. Taking this for granted, his relations with her must still be kept secret, in order to avoid risking his impunity in the tactics he counted upon. His hope was that she would leave the house alone in the course of the morning. It has been mentioned that a railway bridge crossed the road a short distance beyond the Hood's house. On the embankment beyond this bridge twenty or thirty yards from the road was a cluster of small trees and shrubs railed in from the grass which elsewhere grew upon the slope and from the field at its foot here just hidden behind a hawthorn bush and a climbing bramble dagworthy placed himself shortly before eight o'clock on saturday morning having approached the spot by a long circuit of trespass from this position he had a complete view of the house he wished to watch he came thus early because he thought it possible that emily accompanied her father on his morning's walk into dunfield in which case he would follow at a distance and find his opportunity as the girl returned there had been rain in the night and his passage through the bushes covered him with moisture the thick grass, too, in which he stood, was so wet that, before long, his feet grew damp and cold. He was little mindful of bodily discomfort, never moving his eyes for a moment from the door which would give Emily to his view. He knew nothing but the impatience which made it incredible that his watch could keep pace with time He seemed to have been waiting for hours, when yet it was only half-past eight. But at length the door opened. He strained his sight across the distance, but with no reward. Hood left the house alone and walked off quickly in the direction of Dunfield. He must wait. It might happen that Emily would not quit home at all, during the early part of the day. But he must wait on the chance. He dreaded lest rain should fall, which would naturally keep her within doors. But by nine o'clock the sky had cleared, and he saw the leaves above him drying in the sunlight. Inactivity was at all times intolerable to him. To stand thus for hours was an exercise of impatient patience, which only his relentless passion made possible. His body yielded to a sort of numbness, whilst the suffering expectancy of his mind only grew keener. He durst not avert his eyes from the door for an instant. His sight ached and dazzled. Still he waited. At eleven o'clock, Emily came forth. A savage delight seized him as he watched her cross the patch of garden. At the gate she hesitated a moment, then took the way neither to the heath nor to Dunfield, but crossed to a lane which led to Pendell. From his hiding-place Dagworthy could follow her so far and with ecstasy He told himself that she must be going to the Castle Hill. She carried a book in her hand. At length he moved. His limbs had stiffened. It was with difficulty that he climbed to the top of the embankment. Thence he could see the whole track of the lane, which went indeed almost parallel with the railway line. He walked in the same direction, keeping at some distance behind Emily, Before reaching the village of Pindal, he had to cross a field and enter the lane itself. There was now the danger that the girl might look back, but she did not. She was reading as she walked, and continued to do so the whole way to the stile which led into the castle hill. But now it mattered little if she turned her head. He let her pass the stile, and himself paused before following. He was agitated. That which he was about to do seemed harder than he had imagined. He had a horrible fear lest his resolution might fail him at the last moment. The brute in him for an instant almost slept. The woman in the field yonder was not only the object of his vehement desire all the nobler possibilities of his nature united to worship her as the highest and holiest he knew in his heart was a subtle temptation the voice of very love bidding him to cast himself at her feet and sue but for the grace of so much human kindness as would make life without her endurable He remembered the self-abasement which had come upon him when he tried to tell her of his love. The offering had seemed so gross, so unworthy, to be brought before her. Would it not be the same now? He dreaded her power to protect herself, the secret might of purity which made him shrink at her steady gaze but he had gone through much in the last fortnight. The brute forces had grown strong by habit of self-assertion. He looked up, and the fact that Emily had gone from his sight stung him into pursuit. She was sitting where she had sat with Wilfrid, on the fallen tree. The book lay at her side, and she was giving herself to memory Treading on the grass, he did not attract her attention till he almost stood before her. Then she looked at him, and at once rose. He expected signs of apprehension or embarrassment, but she seemed calm. She had accustomed herself to think of him, and could no longer be taken by surprise. She was self-possessed, too, in the strength of the thoughts which he had disturbed. He fed his eyes upon her and kept so long silent that Emily's cheek colored and she half turned away. Then he spoke abruptly, yet with humility, which the consciousness of his purpose could not overcome. You know that I have been away since i saw you last i tried to put you out of my mind i couldn't do it and i am driven back to you i had hoped we should not meet again like this mr dagworthy emily replied in a low voice but firmly she felt that her self-respect was to be tested to the uttermost but she was better able to control herself than at the last interview. The sense of being passionately sought cannot but enhance a woman's dignity in her own eyes, and Emily was not without perception of the features in Dagworthy's character, which made him anything but a lover to be contemned. She dreaded him, and could not turn away, as from one who tormented her out of mere ill-breeding i cannot ask you to pardon me he returned for however often you asked me to leave you i should pay no heed i am here because i can't help myself i mean what i say i can't i can't help it Since you told me there was no hope, I seem to have been in hell. These are not words to use to you. I know it. It isn't that I don't respect you, but because I must speak what I feel. Look, I am worn out with suffering. I feel as if it would take but a little more to kill me, strong man as I am. You don't think I find a pleasure in coming and facing that look that you have? I don't know that I ever saw the man I couldn't meet, but before you I feel, I can't put it into words, but I feel I should like to hide my face still. I have come. I have followed you here. It's more than I can do to give you up.' At the last words he half-sobbed. Her fear of him would not allow Emily to feel deep distress, but she was awed by the terrible evidence of what he endured. She could not at once find words for reply. "'Will you sit down?' he said. "'I will stand here.' but I have more to say to you before I go. Why should you say more? Emily urged. Can you not think how very painful it is to hear you speak in this way? What purpose can it serve to speak to me? When I may not listen, you must listen. I can't be sent away as you would another man. No other on earth can love you as I do. No one, no one would do for you all that I would do. My love gives me a claim upon you. It is you that have brought me to this state. A woman owes a man something who has driven mad by her. I have a right to be here and to say all I feel. He was struggling with a dread of the words he had come to utter. A wild hope sprang in him that he might yet win her in other ways. He used language recklessly, half believing that his arguments would seem a force. His passion was in the death grapple with reason and humanity. If your regard for me is so strong, emily replied should you not shrink from causing me pain and indeed you have no such right as you claim have I in any way sought to win your affection is it manly to press upon me a suit which you know it is out of my power to favor you say you respect me your words are not consistent with respect i owe you nothing mr dagworthy and it is certainly my right to demand that you will cease to distress and trouble me he stood with his eyes on the ground that is all you have to say he asked almost sullenly what more can i say surely you should not have compelled me to say even so much. I appeal to your kindness, to your sense of what is due from a man to a woman, to let me leave you now, and to make no further attempt to see me. If you refuse, you take advantage of my powerlessness. I am sure you are not capable of that." Yes. "'I am capable of more than you think,' he replied, the words coming between his teeth. His evil demon, not himself, was speaking, and finding utterance at length, it made him deadly pale, and brought a cold sweat to his brow. "'When you think afterwards of what I say now,' Remember that it was love of you that made me desperate. A chance you little dream of has put power into my hands, and I am going to use it. I care for nothing on this earth but to make you my wife, and I can do so. Terror weighed upon her heart. His tone was that of a man who would stick at nothing, and his words would bear no futile meaning. Her thoughts were at once of her father. Through him alone could he have power over her. She waited, sick with agonized anticipation, for what would follow your father. The gulf? Between purpose and execution once passed, he had become cruel. Human nature has often enough exemplified the law in prominent instances. As he pronounced the words, he eyed her deliberately and, before proceeding, paused just long enough to see the anguish flutter in her breast. Your father has been guilty of dishonesty. He has taken money from the mill. Any day that I choose, I can convict him. She half closed her eyes and shook, as if under a blow. Then the blood rushed to her face, and to his astonishment, she uttered a strange laugh. That is your power over me, she exclaimed. With all the scorn her voice could express, Now I know that you are indeed capable of shameful things. You think I shall believe that of my father? Dagworthy knew what it was to feel despicable. He would, in this moment, have relinquished all his hope to be able to retract those words. HE WAS LIKE A BEATEN DOG BEFORE HER, AND THE EXCESS OF HIS DEGRADATION MADE HIM BRUTAL. BELIEVE IT OR NOT, AS YOU CHOOSE, ALL I HAVE TO SAY IS THAT YOUR FATHER PUT INTO HIS POCKET YESTERDAY MORNING A TEN-POUND NOTE OF MINE, WHICH HE FOUND IN A LEDGER HE TOOK OUT OF MY ROOM. HE HAD TO GO TO HEBSWORTH ON BUSINESS and there he changed the note to buy himself a new hat. I have a witness of it. When he came back, he, of course, had nothing to say about the money. In fact, he had stolen it. She heard, and there came into her mind, the story of Cheeseman's debt. That was of ten pounds, the purchase her father had been obliged to make of that also she had heard last night and again this morning her mother had incessantly marvelled at this money having been at length returned it was an incredible thing she had said only the sight of the coins could convince her of its truth Emily's mind worked over the details of the previous evening with terrible rapidity and insight. To her directly, her father had spoken not a word of the repayment. He had bidden her to keep in another room while he informed her mother of it. He had shown disinclination to return to the subject when, later, they all sat together. Well here it is, he had said, and we'll talk no more about it. She heard those words exactly as they were spoken, and she knew their tone was not natural, even at the time that had struck her, but her thoughts had not dwelt upon it. She almost forgot Death Gorthy's presence, he and his threats, or of small account in this shaking of the depths of her nature. She was awakened by his voice. Do you think I am lying to you for my own purposes? I cannot say, she answered with unnatural calm. It is more likely than that what you say is true. He by now had attained a self-control which would not desert him. So far in crime, there was no turning back. He could even enjoy the anticipation of each new move in the game, certain of winning. He could be cruel now for cruelty's sake. It was a form of fruition. Well, he said, it is your own concern whether you believe me or not if you wish for evidence you shall have it the completest what i have to say is this from now till monday morning your father is free whether i have him arrested then or not depends upon yourself if you consent to become my wife as soon as it is possible for us to be married "'neither you nor he will ever hear another word of the matter. "'What's more, I will at once put him in a position of comfort. "'If you refuse, there will be a policeman "'ready to arrest him as soon as he comes to the mill. "'If he tries to escape, a warrant will be issued. "'In any case, he will be ruined.' "'Then, after a pause, so you have until to-morrow night to make up your mind you can either send me a note or come and see me i shall be at home whenever you come emily stood in silence i hope you quite understand what i mean dagworthy continued as if discussing an ordinary matter of business no one will ever dream that your father has done anything to be ashamed of after all it is not so impossible that you should marry me for my own sake he said it with bitterness people will see nothing to wonder at fortunately no one knows of that of what you told me your father and mother will be easy for the rest of their lives and without a suspicion that there has been anything but what appears on the surface. I needn't say how things are likely to look in the other event. She stood silent. I don't expect an answer now. Emily shook her head, but, he continued, YOU MUSTN'T LEAVE IT AFTER TOMORROW NIGHT. IT WILL BE TOO LATE. SHE BEGAN TO MOVE AWAY FROM HIM. WITH A STEP OR TWO HE FOLLOWED HER. SHE TURNED. WITH A PASSIONATE MOVEMENT OF REPULSION, TERROR, AND HATE, TRANSFIGURING HER COUNTENANCE, MADE FOR THE EXPRESSION OF ALL SWEET AND TENDER AND NOBLE THINGS, Dagworthy checked himself, turned about, and walked quickly from the place. End of Section 14, Chapter 10